Could celebrating Christmas damn your eternal soul? Is your eggnog leading you on the path to hell? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. In today's episode, I want to talk to you about sin, specifically sinful behavior that some of you might be engaging in right now if you're listening to this episode in December. Have you been decorating your home for Christmas, putting up maybe a tree decorated with tinsel and ornaments and lights? Have you been or are you planning to attend Christmas parties where songs will be played or sung, where alcohol might be imbibed, games played, dances danced, or there might just be a general spirit of revelry? Are you planning to exchange gifts with friends and family members? Then I must warn you, dear listener, that your immortal soul is in danger of the fires of eternal damnation. Christmas, far from a celebration of Christ's birth, has become an insidious holiday designed to lure people into sin under the guise of religious observance. It must be stamped out and abolished for the good of all society. Or at least that was the view of certain 17th century Protestants. Our story begins during the early days of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, Or perhaps I should say Reformations, because Protestantism was not a singular faith or set of beliefs. There were many different Protestant groups who held sometimes widely different opinions about the various ways in which the Christian faith was to be reformed. One of the many Protestant movements was that of the Reformed, capital R, Church Movement, uh, largely based in Geneva, Switzerland. Which, yes, is confusing because... The word reformed, as I will use it for the rest of this episode, refers to the name of the movement, not to the Reformation as a whole or Protestantism as a whole. Because of this confusion around names, the reformed movement or the reformed tradition is sometimes equated with one of its most prominent voices, Jehon Calvin, or John Calvin, as it's rendered in English. Calvin was a former French lawyer who rose to prominence in the Genevan church, Uh, To call the Reformed Church the Calvinist Church, however, is to somewhat overplay slightly Calvin's role, uh, because there were a number of other influential thinkers and preachers in Geneva in the mid-16th century, such as the Scotsman John Knox, who would go on to be one of the key figures in the foundation of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. So what exactly did the Reformed Christians believe? Well, for our purposes, there were a couple of important points and key ways in which they differed from other Protestant groups. One of the points at which John Calvin was most influential was the doctrine of predestination. Now, I could do a whole 30 minutes on this, but the super short version is that predestination is the theological principle that God, before the creation of the universe, had already chosen or elected who would receive salvation. Now, this was a principle which was not entirely unfamiliar with pre-existing Christianity, especially in the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo, but it was a cornerstone of Calvinist theology. Beyond simple predestination was the further doctrine of double predestination, that God had not only chosen who to save, but he had, by extension, also chosen who would be damned, Uh, the difference between regular predestination and double predestination being whether or not damnation was an act of choice by God or whether it was the result of, say, human free will. Uh, Again, I could spend a lot more time on this. The principle of election to predestination, when logically played out, had some profound implications. How did you know that you were one of the elect? Well, there aren't any clear-cut answers. 
Generally speaking, those who are members of God's elect, well, they act like the elect because God has effected a change in them. At some moment, God would give you assurance that you were indeed saved, but that did not free you from doubting your own salvation. As a result, Reformed Christians, or Calvinists, were constantly examining and regulating themselves and their behavior, and any behaviors or temptations which might lead them into sin were to be purged from their midst. Therefore, the Reformed tradition had significant cultural implications, as Calvinists were vehemently opposed to any behaviors which were not edifying and which could offer temptations. Gambling, swearing, and drinking were right out. Anything that might incite sexual lust, from dancing to women curling their hair, was to be detested and prohibited. Another important point was the Reformed Church's emphasis on the primacy of the Bible as the first, last, and only spiritually authoritative text. While Martin Luther, for instance, had emphasized that the Bible alone was spiritually authoritative, a principle known as sola scriptura, Calvin and his followers went even further. Any religious institutions or practices that were not found in either the Hebrew Old Testament or the Christian New Testament were to be utterly done away with, denounced as Catholic papism, practices and doctrines that had grown on the foundation of Christianity like moss in the previous millennium and a half since the time of Christ. And so, out went a whole host of doctrines like transubstantiation and purgatory. The rituals of worship or liturgy also had to be pruned of anything that smacked too much of Catholicism. Venerations of saints, religious statues, stained glass, frescoes, the wearing of priestly vestments and robes, and any kind of elaborate church decoration were all forms of idolatry and vanity, and they had to go. Finally, ecclesiastical structures themselves also needed pruning. While the New Testament mentioned leaders and elders in early groups of Christians, bishops and dioceses were nowhere to be found. They were created as the Christian church grew and adopted an administrative structure that it had largely borrowed from the Roman Empire, and so these too had to be done away with, as did the principles of a separate and sacred intercessory priesthood, uh, the principle of clerical celibacy, and minimal lay participation in church organization and governance. Now, while this movement was developing on the continent, England, beginning in the 1530s, was undergoing its own reformation. The English Reformation, though, followed a different track than that of the continent. While there were people in England who sympathized with, and in fact shared some of the views of the continental reformers, the English Reformation had a very different origin. Rather than a grassroots movement, it began when King Henry VIII sought an annulment of his marriage to his then-wife Catherine of Aragon. Catherine, who was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, was the widow of Henry's elder brother Arthur, who had died less than a year after the couple were married, supposedly without having consummated the marriage. Henry and Catherine then married, but only after having received special permission or a dispensation to do so from the Bishop of Rome, or the Pope, because of the fact that technically Henry was Catherine's brother-in-law and that represented an impediment to the ecclesiastical validity of the marriage. To make a really long story short, Henry was unable, for a variety of reasons, to receive an annulment of his marriage to Catherine, and wound up breaking with Rome uh, and having the English bishops recognize him as the leader of the Christian church in England. Thus was born the uncreatively named Church of England. During Henry's reign, there were some changes to the English church, such as the systematic closing of all England's convents and monasteries, 
But compared to the sweeping reformations of the Lutheran or the Reformed churches, there was less theological or liturgical change. After Henry's death in 1547, his nine-year-old son and product of his third marriage, Edward VI, ascended to the throne. It is during Edward's reign that significant changes begin to happen in the English church, though, again, less dramatic and drastic than some of the continental reformations. Most notably, two years into his reign, the Church of England, under the guidance of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, adopted a revised liturgy, outlined in what came to be known as the Book of Common Prayer. While replacing some Catholic rituals, the Book of Common Prayer retained much of the liturgical style and cycle of Catholic Christianity, and was designed to strike a balance between reforming influences and traditionalists in the English Church. However, Edward only reigned in England for six and a half years. He was succeeded by his older sister Mary, the only surviving child of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Mary was a staunch Catholic, and one of the hallmarks of her also brief five-year reign was to undo many of the tentative reforms of the English Protestants. Upon her death in 1558, she was succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry and his second wife Anne Boleyn, for whom he had ended his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Elizabeth was an avowed Protestant, but she was more on the traditionalist end of the reforming spectrum. Elizabeth's more conservative religious tendencies brought her and her government into increasing conflict with those of her subjects that favored the reformed movement. The influence of Swiss-style reformation had been present in England since the latter days of Henry VIII's reign, but it was a minority position. During the reign of Mary and her attempts to return England back to the Catholic fold, many Protestants fled to the continent, or stayed and faced martyrdom for their beliefs. With Elizabeth's accession, there was some hope from those of the Reformed movement that she would thoroughly cleanse or purify the English church of all remaining Papist Catholic influences. Therefore, in England, we call these people Puritans. It's important to note, however, that the term Puritan is both a later imposition and is somewhat misleading, especially when capitalized, as it gives the illusion of a specific sect or organized church. There was not one Puritan group, but many, and often these groups varied significantly in their reformational beliefs and aims. One area in which we see this division has to do with ecclesiastical organization. Like their continental counterparts, English Puritans embraced predestination, the vernacular translation of the Bible, and tearing down the episcopal or bishop-based structure of the church. The core of Puritan religious organization was for them to be the local church or congregation, which ought to be able to select its own leadership and appoint its own ministers. Some Puritans, however, believed that the individual churches should work with one another and be under the governance of cooperative elected councils. This position, favored by John Knox, was known as Presbyterianism, from the Greek word presbyter, meaning elder. Other Puritans held that each congregation was to be fully autonomous and internally governing. This position was known as Congregationalism. Both Presbyterian and Congregationalist Puritans agreed that the traditional conservative Episcopal and diocesan structure originating in Catholicism and continued by the Church of England needed overhauling or just outright destruction. This position put the Puritans into conflict with Elizabeth, who as a monarch oversaw the bishops and relied on the bishops as a legitimation of her power. To attack the bishops was, for Elizabeth, 
to attack the power of the crown as head of the church in England, and so she vehemently denied any Puritan attempts to reform that aspect of the English church. When Elizabeth died in 1603 without marrying and thus producing an heir, the crown passed to her cousin, James, the King of Scotland, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and great-grandson of Margaret Tudor, sister of Henry VIII. During his reign as King of Scotland, James had clashed with the Presbyterians of Scotland, and his accession to the English crown was also marked from its earliest days by clashes with the Puritans. Like Elizabeth, James viewed Puritans' efforts to remove popish practices, like the wearing of priestly vestments, as a challenge to his royal authority. Given their conflicts with the crown during James's reign, many Puritans chose to formally separate themselves from the Church of England, both literally and religiously. A number of Puritan groups decided to leave England in the period rather than face persecution. Some went to other Reformed communities, such as those of the Dutch Netherlands, while others established colonies in New England in North America, hence the foundation of Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. These conflicts and migrations continued into the reign of James's son, Charles I. Now, both James and Charles sought to shore up royal authority and prerogatives against the encroachment of not only Puritanism, but also the English Parliament, in which more and more Puritan members were being elected. Since Parliament could not convene unless the monarch called it, Charles eventually stopped calling Parliament altogether, and from 1629 to 1640 ruled without ever calling Parliament into session. Eventually, however, Charles found himself in need of Parliament. In late 1637, Charles attempted to force the Church of Scotland to adopt a slightly modified version of the Book of Common Prayer. By 1639, Scotland was in full-on rebellion, and Charles was short of money. Therefore, in April of 1640, he called Parliament back into session, expecting them to pass taxes and give him the money he needed to fight the Scots. When that didn't happen, he dismissed Parliament, only to have to call it back into session that November. This parliament, known as the Long Parliament, would sit, more or less, for the next two decades, until 1660. By 1642, England was in a full-fledged civil war, with Charles and his royalist forces on one side, and the parliamentary forces, led eventually by the Puritan Oliver Cromwell, on the other. The English civil wars are a messy affair, and again, I could spend a whole hour on it, but suffice to say that, in the long term, Charles wound up in parliamentary custody, he was put on trial for treason, and was beheaded in January of 1649. Before, during, and after the English Civil War, Puritan positions found greater and greater traction in the English Parliament, and parliamentary legislation from the period sought to restrict or curb behavior that the Puritans deemed dangerous or unseemly. They closed theaters, they restricted gambling, dancing, swearing, and public drunkenness, Eventually, in 1650, they attempted to make extramarital sex a capital offense. And, perhaps worst of all, they tried to cancel Christmas. Now, for the Puritans, both Christmas and Easter were tinged not only with popish Catholic overtones, the word Christmas, after all, literally is Christ's Mass, but they also contained pagan elements. The revelry and carousing, which were common in the celebration of Christmas, as with any holiday, represented a chance for temptation. Therefore, in June of 1647, Parliament passed a law banning their public celebration. Quote, For as much as the Feast of the Nativity of Christ, Easter, and Whitsuntide, and other festivals, commonly called Holy Days, have been heretofore superstitiously used and observed, 
be it ordained by the lords and commons in parliament assembled that the said feast of the nativity of christ easter and whitsuntide and all other festival days commonly called holy days be no longer observed as festivals or holy days within this kingdom of england and dominion of wales any law statute custom constitution or canon to the contrary in any wise notwithstanding the american puritan colonies also saw similar restrictions in 1659, the Massachusetts Bay Colony made the celebration of Christmas, the exchanging of gifts, wearing of fine clothes, or the holding of Christmas feasts, punishable by a five-shilling fine. Despite these prohibitions, though, the enforcement of behavior regulations and private celebrations was very difficult. While you could find a business for closing on Christmas, it was harder to prove that you were celebrating Christmas if you just had people over for dinner and gave them gifts and presents. Needless to say, Many of the Puritan behavioral and cultural reforms did not find widespread popular traction in England, and after the restoration of the Stuart monarchy in 1660, many of these prohibitions were lifted, although in the American colonies, attempted suppression of Christmas celebrations continued for several more decades. So, this Christmas, as you attend your holiday parties and you exchange your gifts and drink your eggnog, just remember, the Puritans are very disappointed in you. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>